okay, I know you're in the state of denial. We're still improving these tests. This is based off of science that's already there and published. And so once we calmed them down a little bit, we were like, hey, like, why don't you try this? You took the test once, try to take it in six months, make these changes. Think about it this way. We'll send you some papers. For example, caloric restriction can be very, it's already been shown to be very helpful for the human, for human biology, especially with reducing, reducing longevity based now issues. Welcome to another episode of the Elevate podcast. I'm your host, Delaney McGuire. And on this show, we explore people and products that make an impact. We talk all things business, wellness, technology, and entrepreneurship. And today on the show, we have Varun Guaraca. Varun is a PhD and head of bioinformatics at True Diagnostic. Varun has authored numerous publications related to genetics, epigenetic clocks, DNA methylation, and tissue regeneration. Varun is one of the leading scientists in the country focused on applying machine learning methods to advance predictive medicine, and advance our understanding of biological aging. Let's jump straight into the episode. Awesome, Varun, welcome to the show. Thank you, Delaney. Really, I like thank you so much for having me. I watched a couple of your episodes and uh, sorry, listened to them on Apple Podcasts and fantastic. I'm really glad to be here. Awesome. And for anyone who's, what's cool is on Spotify now, you can actually upload the video. So if anyone ends up watching this on Spotify, Varun has a sweet podcast set up. Most, especially these like tech founders that I speak to, they're usually just like on their MacBook or their whatever sitting in their office and it's subpar or different, (laughs) but a great conversation, but Varun's got all the bells and whistles and it's epic. (laughs) Trying to keep the listeners and viewers happy. (laughs) There you go. Perfect. I will have already introduced you at a high level to the audience. I would just love for you to start with at a high level. What are you up to? Sure. Yeah. So I guess my role with the company that I'm attached to, True Diagnostic Incorporated, I serve as the head of bioinformatics, which essentially means I'm existing at this nexus of biology and computer science and really using the big data tools to really go through a lot of the big biological big data. And what that means is that whenever we look at biological data, specifically for us, we're looking at epigenetics. And so these are the, on your DNA, especially at these cytosine bases, these are the marks that are on there. The way that we get a lot of that information is we're getting it through thousands and thousands of of patients, if not tens of thousands. And how do we utilize a lot of machine learning AI methods, even statistical methods to really garner information. And so my role in true diagnostic and what I'm, what I do most of the time is utilizing a lot of machine learning to really go through all this biological big data. That's so cool. And And, uh, sorry. And then one thing I forgot to, I forgot to mention is that by using a lot of these tools, how can we make predictive models that can then turn into predictive solutions for people that are interested very much in aging and longevity? I love that. We're definitely going to dive into the nitty gritty, at least for us who may not be ML experts to just shed some light and get a deeper understanding of these concepts. But before we do that, would love for you to brag about yourself a little more because we know you also, (laughs) why don't you just give a little bit more background on yourself as well? Some of your education. I know you do some publishing and things like that. Let us have some of that context as well. Yeah. So I'm actually a native of the San Francisco Bay area. I, I grew up in Cupertino, California been there, was there since my kindergarten all the way till pretty much after my undergrad. So 
grew up there, went to my undergrad at U University of California, Santa Cruz, go slugs. <laughs> and that was where I started to, I think just that upbringing in Silicon Valley got me really open to technology and utilizing technology in multiple fashions. And it's funny because I did not want to do anything with technology. I actually was trained as a guitarist and I wanted to be a musician, professional musician, go to Berkeley College of Music and do all of that. And that really didn't vibe with what my parents wanted. And honestly, that's probably good that I listened to them and went the route of the science, not saying that you can't have a bad career as a, as a musician, but I think finding a niche in this whole area of bioinformatics and computational biology that was something that I picked up at the University of California, Santa Cruz, which if the listeners don't know, that's the home of the first assembled genome, human genome. And so a lot of the people there that are still there, they had a huge part in really contributing to this, to the human genome project and things like that. And through that, I did my undergrad there. I worked at University of California, San Francisco as a bioinformatician, so computational biologist in the lab. And really, I, I took a year off between my undergrad and my grad school and that's when I got the bug is just really looking at the utility and the, the puzzle solving really that came with applying coding and these coding techniques and statistics to really identify correlative and potentially causal patterns that really contributed to like cancer and all these other biological processes. And so from there, I was like, you know what, this is what I want to do. Let's do it. I'm all in. And so I did a PhD at the University of Kentucky. So I moved from San Francisco, the Bay Area to Lexington, Kentucky, which I'm still located there in Kentucky and really advanced my 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 skill set in bioinformatics and started to learn a little bit more of like machine learning on the job. I didn't have any formal, I'm not a formal trained coder. It was just something that I, it was a tool that was there. I learned it and I started to apply it. So, oh, it'd be cool if we applied it here. And it actually panned out pretty well. Yeah, so that's where I studied. I studied salamanders, how salamanders are able to regenerate. So trying to identify those genes that really were, were being activated or even repressed during a limb regeneration or even tail regeneration. And trying to see if that's something that is conserved even in humans and potentially that's an avenue that we could study. And so that kind of got me surprisingly into this whole area of aging because you know, as there's this whole notion that as salamanders are able to regenerate, do those, the cells that really come that are at the area of amputation or the loss, are those younger cells or are they older cells? Like how do those cells know? And then the whole idea of aging came into play. So yeah, so I did my PhD. I got my PhD in 2021 and then found myself at True Diagnostic first as a consultant when I was finishing up my dissertation and then full-time as the head of bioinformatics really helping out with not helping out, but like really building the pipelines, but then also generating new tools that we can offer to the masses. Love that. So cool. Yeah. I, I'd love to hear, actually, first, I just want to acknowledge how cool it is that you just picked up machine learning on the fly. I would say <laughs> for myself, and I'm sure it was challenging and it took time. Um, yep. I think really cool thing to call out because for myself, I work in tech, but I definitely have a business, more marketing, consumer oriented focus. But for anyone who might like AI and machine learning is such a buzz term right now. And I think a lot of people probably have a preconception that it's really hard and like impossible if you weren't born with a laptop in your hand as a fetus, <laughs> or maybe your parents got you into it at a young age or you studied computer science. But I think yeah, machine learning was and that's the thing that I really wanted that I'm glad you mentioned that because 
a lot of these tools came out of necessity. And, and I think the best way, and I think a lot of other people will agree, like the people that I look up to and the people that I've really interacted with that are savants and like machine learning and AI, they didn't have formal training. They were like, I really would like to apply this for the problem that I'm trying to solve. Yeah. And it was a very kind of PhD for me. It was a P- PhD was the environment getting my PhD and the graduate work was my environment to learn. But if somebody's out there who's, let's say, working a, in a nine to five job, but then there's some kind of side project that's associated with that, with the job and they want to do it, it's totally doable. Obviously it takes time and it takes patience and takes effort in the sense that positive thinking and just saying, I can do this. I can do this. Let's just, and if things aren't working out, just take the L for the day and then move forward yep. the next day. Exactly. But the patience really helps. And that's that. what helped me. Love that. I think there's something to be said there too about attaching it to something you're genuinely passionate about. Yeah. Like the amount of people who probably had it on their goals for this year to learn how to code, but then you're just taking some sort of like random boot camp that you're just doing random projects that don't mean anything to you. It's <laughs> such a different game when it's something you're like deeply connected to and you really care about the outcome. And quite honestly, if the boot camps work, hey, more props to you. And but I think it's just the it's that notion of everyone learns a different way. So Absolutely. if something's not working for you, don't feel like, hey, like I'm screwed out of this. No, try some other way. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome tangent. Back to definitely what I wanted to bring up next. And for my own curiosity, and I imagine a lot of other people have curiosity as well. Longevity has been a hot topic over the last several years. It's definitely come onto the scene. Would love for you to unpack for us. We don't have to rabbit hole it super hardcore off the bat, but just sure. when it comes to epigenetics and what you guys are doing with machine learning, it's like how would you tee that up for someone who's curious and has a some has a foundation in longevity and understanding, or at least having a passion for it? Uh, yeah. But yeah, give us a little bit of insight into your work and how we can understand the process itself. No, absolutely. I think it, it might be best to define what epigenetics is. Because every time I say epigenetics, people think about genetics, which they're somewhat interrelated, but it is a completely, it's a different facet of biology than genetics. When we talk about epigenetics, we are still considering the DNA that makes up the cell and makes up the genetic material of who you are. But it's actually the idea that rather than changing your DNA or the processes that are, that come from changing your DNA, rather it's how your DNA is being read. And so when we talk about epigenetics, we're specifically looking at certain markers on your DNA, which facilitate that DNA being read a certain way. And in particular, when we talk about epigenetic testing in the case of longevity, specifically from true diagnostic side, we're looking at DNA methylation. These are those flags or essentially markers on the cytosines of your DNA, which are added. And based on the orientation of which markers are added or not or removed, that can actually impart a lot of, that could be used almost as a diagnostic, especially in the case of longevity and understanding biological age. And so this really came out in 2011 in the Brockland et al. 2011 paper, which Stephen Horvath, big name that I really need to emphasize, they identified that a lot of that information of chronological age, so the age based on the date of birth, that is actually very much associated to DNA methylation in those orientations. And then in 2013, what he started, what Steve Horvath started to realize is that you can actually use the DNA methylation or train any kind of linear regression models or even some type of machine learning model. And you can actually predict the person's age based on just the blood DNA methylation orientation. So 
essentially you can get a drop of blood, sequence that blood, and you don't know, you know, you may not know how old that sample is, but based on the model that was generated, if you apply that model to that data set, you could figure out the age within about, I think it was like three to four years of error. Wow. Yeah. But what was interesting is that even that error that they were, that he was seeing was actually biologically informative because if a age came out to be younger than the actual age of the individual, that actually related to how healthy that person was. And so that's where the longevity space, especially with epigenetic testing and just epigenetic clocks and just biological clocks in general, they're starting to hit that error rate because they were like, Hey, we need to actually, we don't want to kill that error. We want to embellish it or not embellish it, but improve it because that error is where the, that's where everything is. And so it's through that, that especially with true diagnostic, we've been working on not only improving the epigenetic clocks, but starting to integrate different biological sectors. So not just looking at epigenetics, but your proteins, your proteomics, your metabolites, your metabolomics, and other clinical covariates. We're already doing kind of lipid tests and your H1BACs, all of these general routine checkups. You can start integrating all of these things into one multi-omic or multiple biological predictor. And so that's where we're going towards. But yeah, so the longevity space has been really looking into how do we, first of all, how do we improve the current epigenetic clocks? But then from that, can we start to integrate other types of biological facets into one composite score that can then touch on those errors and really inform people more about their biological age? I love that. So yeah, it's the concept of maybe on paper you're 27, but based on your blood results, you actually have the blood markers of a 24-year-old. And extrapolating the insights of, okay, what is it, what is it about you and the way you're treating your body and your health and those submetrics? And then if we take it, and if we take it further, it's if you are 24, then what are you doing? That's actually giving you a lower age. And that's actually something that we're starting to touch upon because just now we're starting to get into this area that, okay, we got the clocks, they're working. Now it's like, why are they working the way they are? That's so fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. And then that has clinical relevance too, because anytime with us, we have a DTC Marcus, a director consumer, but we really like to focus with clinicians and a lot of feedback that we get from clinicians is like, how can we use this information to help our patients, Mm. which that's what the preventative medicine is all about, right? It's okay. You got a score. That's cool. But what do I do with the score? (laughs) Oh, okay. I have a question that I need to bookmark for later because I do want to set some more foundation for our listeners. So We've been talking about true diagnostic. What does the consumer journey look like? You're just a person who's, whether you're curious or not, if you were to stumble into true diagnostic, how does that look? You said you have D2C, you said you shared that there's also the clinical route. Obviously there's testing of my different blood and biomarkers, but what does that look like? Sure. Yeah. I'll give you maybe two scenarios. The two different scenarios, the first scenario is going to be that DTC market, the direct to consumer. Let's say you're, you start to hear things about epigenetic testing search it up on Google, you'll maybe come across our our website. And so you can buy a kit from us. I think it was about $499, $500, depends on the sale. And then so what you once you purchase it, we'll send you a collection kit where you essentially do a fingerprint prick test, collect some blood, either you could collect it based off of like just a vial of blood, or you could do a dried blood spot card. So just do a finger prick and then just really dab it wet with your blood onto this card. And then you just send the card over to our lab in Lexington, Kentucky. 
that's and then from that you get your results but the behind the scenes is that once we get your dry blood spot card we are able to extract the dna undergo bisulfite conversion and do all of the pre-processing steps where we're able to sequence or just quantify those cpg those cytosine flags those methylation flags we'll call it dna methylation we can look at dna methylation across 850,000 sites which is still representative of about 3% of all cytosines in your body because that's 28 million. But it, but those cytosines are actually very important for calculating your biological age. And so we can do this high throughput. So we'll process like 192 at least per week, samples per week. And so once we do that, that my, my counterpart, Dr. Tavis Mendez, he takes care of all of the, him and his team take care of all the processing. And then once they're read through our scanners, it actually comes as a digital format. And so where me and my team come into play is how do we make that human readable and start applying all the models. Once we do all that calculation, again, behind the scenes, consumer doesn't have to worry about that. We'll deliver all of this information as a report to you, along with recent clinical publications, any kind of publication that we've done or other researchers in the field have done using epigenetic clocks in the context of improved associating it to diseases and things. Yeah. Okay. And so they'll get all the metrics and report format, but obviously people are like, okay, what does this mean? And so then for the DTC market, they can have a one-on-one consultation with somebody in-house at True Diagnostic who can actually explain what does this really mean from the content of the literature, the current literature. Got it. Yeah. To me, that's the million dollar question. And one of my biggest curiosities coming into this conversation that I really think can apply to probably a lot of listeners who work in a similarly complex space. It's like very cool technology, cutting edge technology, but you have a consumer that definitely doesn't understand the backend processing and probably doesn't even understand the results once they are shown to them the first time. So I'd be really curious if you can even speak to some examples of, or even just frameworks of thought processes, about how are you converting them from, I have no idea what methylation means to, I can take actionable there can be actionable, tangible results from this. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And to that point, I will say we have a full-time consultant, not consultants, but individuals that do consultations. But what I can, what I could say is that we've already known certain behavioral changes can actually improve these clocks. So for example, we've had one person come in, they're like, oh, I work out a lot. I work out a lot. I eat relatively healthy and I have some fun, but I'm pretty disciplined. They get their age back. It was actually like a few years older than what they are chronologically. And so they're like, man, I don't like, I don't know. First of all, first it's like resentment or not resentment. What's that word? Disbelief, something like that. Disbelief, exactly. Yeah. Screw (laughs) you guys. Yeah. Do you guys even know what you're doing? Like, understandable. Hey, I know you're in the state of denial. We're still improving these tests. This is based off of science that's already there and published. And so once we calm them down a little bit, we're like, hey, like, why don't you try this? You took the test once, try to take it in six months, make these changes. Think about it this way. We'll send you some papers. For example, caloric restriction can be very, it's already been shown to be very helpful for the human, for human biology, especially with reducing, reducing longevity based now issues. So why don't you implement a, let's say a 25% reduction of your caloric intake. Um, Start to be mindful about what kind of exercises you're doing, because that could also be influential in how you're aging and make these changes. So they go through, they make those changes. And then six months later, they start to realize their epigenetic age is dropping. Now they're like, okay, we just gamified this. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. And then we at least have someone to have like a metric to say, 
is what is what I'm doing actually helping versus not? And I think having that game like gamification really helps with getting people motivated or in staying motivated in a certain routine. I love that. I think that's so important and something I think about a lot. I just have this like nerdy excitement about health product, like products on the scene that are genuinely making an impact. And I love seeing products and companies that they don't just offer cool tools, but time and time again, like actual big shifts in people's lives. And for me, the common through line, we talked about that new episode in Headspace. What are they yeah. doing? They're gamifying the experience. And it's even just like you're trying to lose weight. Like you get on the scale, you if you're getting on the scales, it may be a little demotivating at first, just like that guy you mentioned with the biological, the, the epigenetic clock. Yeah, yeah. But every day you see it inch a little bit or six months later, you can actually get a real read on your markers. I think that is, I think yeah. having a feedback loop really is critical. Now. And I will say this because I, you touched on this word that I really want to stress is it's a marker. It's a biomarker, right? And the things that we are suggesting are helping this certain biomarker. So I will also have to say that there are other biomarkers out there and there's other ways that you can improve your age that we haven't yet quantified, but but based off of what we've known and what we've what we've been seeing in the longevity space, epigenetic age seems to really correlate with better health metrics overall, and also associate with really the reduction of disease occurrences and showing as, as your epigenetic age goes down, we're starting to see other disease outcomes go down as well. I love that. Yeah, to me, it, it's funny in a way of. Like all those things that came out of this really complex cycle are things that people have been hearing their entire life they should do. But yeah. everyone need sometimes recommendations don't necessarily penetrate until you really right. feel something viscerally. So I, to be completely and, fair, it's like whatever's going to get you there and whatever's going to really wake yourself up to taking ownership of those. And I actually didn't want to share this story, but I feel like maybe this... I took the test and I was actually 10 years older than I am chronologically. Wow. And so that was, if I had to be like, so I'm just going to, it made me feel a certain way. I was like, I like, I have to make changes and things like that. And obviously, but then also reflecting on time in grad school, the stress that was coming through and how, and starting to see that this, this metric that we're, we developed is showing that a lot of that stuff did impact me from a biological sense. And so I can imagine people who, if your viewers have already taken one or are scared about taking it, but it is, I'm not going to lie. It is from a mental perspective, seeing a higher number makes you feel, okay, damn, I got to do something to change this. But I think that also was a wake up call because then I started to implement working out, eating, lowering my disease consumption, not disease consumption, drinking <laughs> consumption. I definitely don't want to consume diseases Yeah, not uh, and, and also sleep. And also prioritizing, relaxing, like yoga and things like that. And that has actually started to improve my epigenetic age from there. I just wanted to share that anecdote because even the people that kind of build this were going through the same stuff as everyone else. Yeah. It's a human thing, right? It's a human thing. It's yeah. way easier to sweep it out of the rug, but I think right. that's great. And I, it's, I know like a hot buzzword now is health span. You have your lifespan, yeah. but your health span and how long are you going to enjoy quality of life for how long? And it's, does it maybe for... A year or two, does it suck and it's hard and you go through challenging, challenging trials of changing patterns. But if that means you get an extra 20 years of really high quality life, I think that's really exciting. Yeah. And I have never done an epigenetic test, but I'm, you didn't even tell me. I sold, I think I sold myself through this conversation <laughs> that I'm going to hop on and get myself one right after yeah, this call. Yeah. It's cool. And it's like, why not now? And I'll even say like for myself, 
I've just got into doing gen like general blood testing, just like mm. full blood panel testing about a year yeah. ago. And pretty similarly, I always thought I was extremely healthy, but I had a, almost half a dozen metrics that I definitely needed to take care of. And a year later, there a lot of them are pretty much where they should be, but hard, scary, but invites in like real habit change. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. And imagine if you never did it, did it right. It's yeah. just, you just yeah, assumed. Like yeah. And then all of a sudden, like when it gets to a point where it really becomes a problem, then you're, I imagine a lot of them is I should have taken it before. <laughs> exactly. You don't want to be, you don't want to be 60 and get some sort of diagnosis and you can't really backtrack it. Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's very cool. Is there anything about the, would you maybe talk about just like how machine learning works at a high level? I know yeah. that's like probably a pretty challenging question, but I don't know. I'm fascinated with it. And it's still something I'm not an expert in by any means, but I'd love to like, how do you think about it? What does the process look like? Yeah. Or maybe even if you want to speak even broadly, like how else do you see it being applied in this space that's interesting to you? Not a problem. Yeah. So I will say I'm a, I'm an adopter as a tool from the tool perspective. So I'm not a classically trained machine learning or computer scientist. So I do want to put that out there. So any computer scientists watching, yeah, <laughs> but the way that I've been seeing it is that it's a data-driven approach. So you, rather than, so there's two ways of doing it. You could do unsupervised or supervised based on supervised machine learning, unsupervised machine learning, or artificial intelligence replace that. When I when we talk about machine learning, supervised machine learning, um, humans have already in whatever space that you really want, we already have preconceptions. So what you could do is based on those preconceptions, you could have those be certain parameters, and then let and train a model based on those parameters to find other things that are highly associated, either correlative, causative, or just associated in general, and then let the model do the searching rather than you do the searching. And so it's a very data-driven approach of identifying features that are maybe associated to, let's say, in my case, a biological phenomenon like aging or a cancer, it being producing a model that goes through all of these different cancer types and says, hey, this is how you can differentiate between this cancer and that cancer. The same thing can be said about for driving with with Tesla because a lot of what the auto the self driving is based on machine learning because it's able to look at certain features okay anytime that there's a red light we have to slow down and so this pattern recognition cuz that that can then turn into a model itself i'm not going to speak more on that just because i'm not sure, i'm not a Fair tesla <laughs> ai specialist or machine learning specialist which those two are two different things but in the case of biology that's really what we're trying to figure out is how do we differentiate now that's supervised because you're using preconceptions and already parameters that we know to find other parameters. Or you can do the other route where AI has actually been really strong in. If you have a large enough data set, you can just look at, hey, this is the outcome. Can you find things in the data that can predict that outcome? And then that's where that's where unsupervised machine learning or unsupervised artificial intelligence and or machine learning really comes into play is because at that point you're like, Hey, I don't care about what we already know. Let's just let the data figure it out for us. And so that's where, when you start to look at statistics, you have linear models and then nonlinear models, models that really don't fit like a Y equals MX plus B. But it's, if you have, let's say at different time points, let's say you're looking at, I don't know, hormonal levels. They're not just a stagnant 
a linear line. It's like up and down and up and down. That's where the nonlinear machine learning or nonlinear artificial intelligence really comes into play. So that. it's, but I think at the crux of it or at the center of all, center of all of it, it's really letting the data, parsing through the data to identify those features that associate to whatever outcome that you really want. Yeah. And I'd have to imagine this is pr probably the biggest thing is just like a really high quality data set and a ton of data points, right? If, oh, especially absolutely. for the unstructured data, it's all about and, pumping in millions and millions of data points or something that, to that effect. And one thing that I started to realize very quickly is that the reason why machine, like the mark of a good machine learning algorithm, or even just like a machine learning specialist, they spend most of their time cleaning the data, not actually building models. Mm -hmm. Because if you have a very noisy data set, the, these models or the way that you pick out these features or run these models, it'll pick something out anyway, because the machine will find something, sure. <laughs> anything that fits that parameter. Yeah. But you don't clean it. For example, for us, we have to look at when was the sample collected? Did it get collected in the same lab? Was it the same person that collected it? Was it a different extraction method? Was the, you know, what was the relative level of DNA concentration? All of these things that we take for granted sometimes as a, let's say a data specialist, that is actually super important because that can actually, and then that can, first of all, affect the data set. But then also number two is if you don't clean for that, whatever you think is a feature or something that's driving the data set may just be because it's a technical error. Yeah. Yeah. We don't want that. <laughs> and we really don't want that. So yeah, to your point of it, it, you really need a clean data set to make something that is powerful. And then also that clean data set has to be, it has to be able to explain larger than the population you're looking at it. So how applicable is it to other to other scenarios. Very interesting. I'd love for us to pivot back to a topic that we touched on a little bit, which sure. was the user journey and the user experience. I think especially for people in wellness and in tech, it's just, I don't know, it really touches the core of anything, whether you're a consumer or you're building technology. From where you guys are at today, do you see any gaps, any continuing, continually existing gaps or opportunities, and it could be within this company, within sure. True Diagnostic, but even uh, definitely permission to speak more broadly to what you're seeing in the space. Where do you think are the opportunities to continue to move the needle for the actual impact it's making in someone's life um, as it relates to the underlying technology? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the first one that comes to mind is how do we make this actionable? We're in, excuse me, we're in the business of creating biomarkers and all these diagnostic tests. I think that question was raised, like, how is any of this even useful for the end user? And I think where the way that the opportunity there is actually conducting a lot of research with either it be academia, like academics or other industry partners, and actually doing this as like IRB trials, like institutional research board based trials and, or even clinical trials in a unbiased and hopefully non-profit or not-for-profit kind of research. And that's where I think it, it is important to do. And I think people recognize that, but, but it is very hard to do because first of all, you have to be able to get the right population and be able to run this. And so I think the gap there is in order to fill the gap of making this actionable, you have to be able to test these diagnostics in different use case scenarios, especially with, with individuals. And then from there, you have to be very honest about saying, what are we actually telling you? And what is this actually associating with? 
And that's why I think the gap is being filled, but that's where the gap exists is doing the necessary research to actually be able to say how applicable are these biomarkers in the use case scenario of, an, of a human individual. Because when it comes to health, you have to be damn certain that whatever you're saying is is actually happening because that's a human life that you're, yeah. that it's a, somebody's livelihood and health that you're really taking into play. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's number one. I think number two is I found the same scenario. It's if you're so hyper-focused into one diagnostic, that actually could be a boon. That could be a detriment because again, biology doesn't exist in a unilateral way. It's a lot of crosstalk. You're having genes being activated, which then, you know, central dogma, if you think about it, genes are activated, create mRNA to formulate proteins. And those proteins act as have interplay and all that. If you're only focusing on one thing, <laughs> you're forgetting all of the inter, like the interconnectivity of biology, which is inherently what we're studying <laughs> and what these tests are actually looking at. And so I think this whole coming back to that whole idea of multiomics, that's why true diagnostic went into that sector. And I hope other people are doing that. I'm sure they are, but specifically for true diagnostic, we went there because we understand that, Hey, this is just one aspect. We need to be able to combine information from multiple aspects. Yep. And so there is still a gap there. We're trying to fill it. And then I'm sure other people are trying to fill it as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of funny. I have, of course, I have very various interests of people I'd like to get on the show. Just so happened outside of the Noom episode, the last three have all been people that run are in senior leadership at the very specifically biomarker longevity companies. Yeah. And it's been really interesting to hear the slight nuances and similarities between them. So it is really cool. I'm very excited for the future where it's all extremely interrelated, whether through like open API connection or whatever, but oh, yeah. all, and I'm sure the machine learning and AI applied to it will be insane, but it's like, I'm have on a quarterly basis or a yearly basis, I'm doing the true longevity test. I also constantly have my aura ring and yeah. my, my whoop and my whatever, but it's because I really yeah. think not that I know anything, but it seems like oh, no. you have your, you can get this really deep analysis, but then it really does like, where does the rubber hit the road of habitual action? And am I measuring those like daily reps and those daily cycles and getting feedback on that? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm yeah. really excited for that future. Oh, I have to give a shout out because just exactly what you're saying, Brian Johnson, who I think was the C founder of Brainify and then PayPal and Venmo through acquisitions. So he is doing the blueprint project, but also he's kind of running this whole thing of like rejuvenation Olympics. And so that's what he's doing is that he's getting measurements of literally everything in, in his like reg regiments of just improving his health. One of the metrics is our true diagnostic, our pace report our pace me measure. It's essentially a speedometer of aging. So it tells you how fast you're aging or how slow you're aging at that time. But he's been exactly doing the same thing. He's taking all of his full blood panel, his looking at his cardi cardiovascular health, looking at his VO2 max, all of those things, and then also integrating pace and then having a composite score from mm. every aspect of these things. And exactly. essentially turning this into a He's trying to be a longevity athlete, which for him, it's taking a lot of money because these things aren't cheap, yeah. but cutting, being on the cutting edge of it before it's been really business model vetted and exactly yeah. accessible to people. You have to be building it yourself. And yeah, to his, to, to his success. Like I, I think that the fact that he even has a discipline to do that while being such a big name in the entrepreneurship and like he has his own business that he's running, like. I give him all the roses and all the, all the commendations because he's doing it. But I think kind of what you're saying is I'm really hoping that 
by as time goes on, that's the kind of gamify aspect or even just like the metric based aspect people are going to be taking. I'm here for it. Can't wait. (laughs) Very cool. Just a few last questions for you. One outside of trailing the end of this topic, when you think about broadly the future of, and even more the recent future, the next couple of years of where longevity science meets tech meets wellness in general. Are there any other trends you're excited about or any other, not that you have to be correct in your predictions, but where do you see this industry or this space going? Um, any, anything else that you'd like to share? Yeah, I think the integration, like what we talked about, how do we integrate all these pieces of data into something more cohesive? And then how do we make it actionable, obviously? Also, the ethics behind longevity. I think that's something that maybe not exciting, but it's something that I always think about is making that distinction or educating the masses, the distinction between health span and lifespan, because if we, anytime I say I work in aging, so how do I live up till 150 or something? So that's not why we're doing it. And first, and also personal opinion, I don't want people to live until 150 because that has a huge impact on the world. Like the amount of consumption that increases as people live beyond a certain age yeah. it can be de- have detrimental effects on just the environment of the of the ecosystem of the earth. That is a very like bigger yeah. picture thing. But super valid, right? It's just, it seems like we human history in a nutshell, we get excited about innovation and it's just like no one really notices the implications on the earth until like decades later. Until decades and, later, And it yeah. needs to be addressed. And I, I think that's really fair and really valid. And just AI ethic conversations across the board. I think yeah. it's very valid to start thinking about these things as they become closer to reality. And, and as somebody in the field, I really want to stress the health span because I think that's a bigger issue than keeping people until 150. I think if you can live until 80 and have a very full life with n- minimal comorbidities, minimal disease, health risks, and, and then you can pass away in your sleep just without much, much issues. I think, I I feel like for me personally, that is much better than living until 150. And then your last 50 years were just so terrible. You're just on a tube and you're just like in a bed. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'd rather take the 80 than 150 in that, in those two scenarios. Same here, my man. Very cool. So you mentioned before we started recording that you have a big passion for, you obviously came from the grad school route and find yourself in this really exciting space, getting to work with these companies. What advice do you have for anyone who might be feeling like an outsider looking into these companies that are making big impacts? They might be coming from that more academic background and don't feel like they have a strong foothold to jump into the space. What have you found, what have been the strategies or frame, even mental frameworks that have allowed you to get to where you're at today? Yeah. Yeah. That, by the way, thank you for bringing that up because yeah, I, I was a graduate student for six years. And, I, and truth be told, like, I think a huge part of me wanted to continue in academia, go through my postdoc, get a tenure, hopefully a tenure professorship and continue that way. And so when I chose to come to True Diagnostic, a startup company, it was almost like things were very different because I was like, oh, this is going to be industry. It's a completely different frame set. People are caring more about money than actual research. And I am happy to say that hasn't been my experience. I think that for any grad student that's watching or or thinking about deciding between staying in academia or industry, staying in academia is 100% fine. I wanted to do it, but don't sell, keep an open mind when you're considering a lot of the industrial jobs and especially research jobs in companies like True Diagnostic or let's say Genentech, Eli Lilly, or any of these other places and startups really. Keep an open mind and just know that when you get into these kind of roles, it's going to be deliverables. 
you're not just doing research for the sake of doing research. You are doing research not only to better the company, but to really impact the product, which I actually think that in certain ways, academia teaches you, but we just don't realize that it's teaching you. You're, you're doing research in academia for the sake of getting grants. Grants are a product. <laughs> Here, we're doing research to improve the prediction of biological age or to be able to create a more ubiquitous, or sorry, a more not opposite of ubiquitous, focused cancer drug, mm. uh, things like that. And so you're always looking for improvement. So I think for the graduate student that's looking out there, it's just may, try to find similarities, but understand there's deliverables are very important in this case. And to that extent, you'll be working a little bit, you'll be working harder <laughs> to essentially meet those deadlines. And also, you know, certain projects may not pan out, but that is okay. Just make sure that you're applying the same scientific method that you were applying as a graduate student to even that research role or any role in the in the industry sector as well, because it's very much appreciated there mm -hmm. as well. I love that. Feels like really breaking down stigma in terms of what it means to go hashtag corporate. It doesn't yeah. need to be that way. And it's especially one thing I think about is I've been listening to a lot of Lex Friedman lately. He brings mm -hmm. on a lot of people that are leaders at these AI-driven companies or organizations. And one thing that always surprises me is how often he refers to these people. And then you hear it through conversation that these people leading big organizations that maybe the media will portray as negative or non-moral are actually like really high quality people. And also like with actually a deep care for ethics and the human society and trying to make the world a better place. And I think it's also for people who have that, they really care. Yeah. about the planet, the species, humanity, having a strong moral compass, getting yeah. to actually bring that in and help shape a culture, help shape an enterprise that's like really bringing an impact to consumers through capitalism. And it can actually right. be done in a positive way. And even as I heard you say that, really sharing that perspective for the students in academia, I actually would invite you to give us the pitch for other health tech companies out there. Because I know there are a ton of health tech companies that have a big vision to make an impact and progress wellness health forward that probably don't have a research wing as of now. So what would you say to that company? Specifically for the re bolstering their research. Yeah. Uh, like aspect. we're talking about academia yeah. and bringing people on and I, I'd, yeah. I'd have to, I, what just came straight to my mind is I, there has yeah. to be a bigger opportunity for market for organizations that are really catching on and have capital. And if they have, yeah. if they have that shared mission, to really invest in bringing more academics into their companies if they're not already doing so. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'll even just, I think this is an example is Google. I think in Google and places like Facebook, they actually allocate about 10% to 20% of their time to passion projects. Say, hey, you have all this time. And it's through that, that they've been able to get all of these different products out. Like I think Gmail was a product that came from that 20% of just do whatever you want, just research. And like, we'll give you that time. Calico Labs is a offshoot of the Google X kind of, mm. what do you call it, initiative. And that was a passion. They started to realize, hey, we should maybe invest a little bit into, into aging and starting to use non-model organisms. So my background where they're looking at sea elegans and trying to understand what how these sea elegans are able to age at a much slower rate. But this is like an entire company that's funded by <laughs> Google. It's yeah. an offshoot. And I, I think to that point, it is daunting. It is scary it, to invest in something that you don't know will work out. But I think that's where... I think that's where a lot of innovation is done, like going to the moon or NASA, or even just the story. I, 
I know this might be going a little bit more, but PCR, Kerry Mullins, there's a fantastic story. The guy who discovered polymerase chain reaction, which is now part of PCR tests and everything, you know, it was something that he was hanging out with his girlfriend on, I think, Highway 1 in Northern California saw some stuff in the clouds. I think he was on something, but I'm not sure. That's, but he saw some stuff in the clouds, which ended up becoming the entire procedure for PCR. There we go. And he was like, I don't know if it's going to work, but let's just go to the lab and try it. And let's then that- try it. Sometimes you just get that inspiration. Yeah. Obviously, Carrie Mullen's story is a little bit different, but I sure. think people are already doing it, especially yeah. with the examples. You know, yeah. it's going to be an investment, but I think it's worthwhile. I love that. I'm here for it. Very cool. Last, really last, question for you is just for everyone who's really enjoyed this conversation, technically two questions, for everyone who's enjoyed this conversation, really learned, really liked hearing what you had to share. What have been some of your favorite more recent or just over the, your growth in your career? What are some of your favorite resources that have inspired you or driven your growth, whether it's books, podcasts, mm-hmm. anything that you would leave as a follow-up for anyone listening who wants to keep going? Sure. Yeah. I think my inspiration has always been people like even amongst my colleagues, the founders of our company, I see them with awe because there's certain ways that they work and it's inspiring to see people even in my close collective where whenever they work really hard, it's okay. I kind of want to match that. Like I want to pull my own weight. That's one thing. But even like when I start to realize understanding people's stories and it doesn't even have to be the scientists like Jack Hart. Arlo, <laughs> of all people, I'll read some of their biographies. Shinya Yamanaka, the individual that found the Yamanaka factors, which now are able to take adult uh, adult cells back to the pluripotent stem cells. I don't know anybody else who's looked at Jack Harlow and Shinya Yamanaka in the same way, but it's those stories of how they like grinded and they just, and the kind of stuff that they had to go through to get to their position. Russ, the rapper. I love Yeah. Like I, I actually, it's funny, Jay-Z, like how they were able to get through obviously certain hard times and the, but the determination, the grit, I think that's been the inspiration for me, just work ethic. What is the good work ethic, but also like knowing when to back off. I've learned that from people too, like grad student friends who are like, Hey man, I'm just burnt out. I'm going to take a break. I'm like, you can't take a break. You got to keep working. You got to keep working. And then they start doing really well mentally and also at the work. I'm like, actually they might be right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm, for me personally, it's been a very people centric experience is keep your ego at the door and learn from people, even if it means watching something that's terrible and telling yourself, don't do that. <laughs> yep. I love it. Being aware of your surroundings. Yeah. And then who- obviously podcasts, that's where I, I'll learn about people's backgrounds. Obviously I don't read books as much anymore. I've gone over to the side of just technical papers, but that's, hey, that find your niche. but yeah, I think mainly it's the human experience. I love that. Fantastic. All right. Beautiful. So last thing then, for people who want to connect more with you and sure. or get involved with True Diagnostic, where can people pursue both of those? Sure. I'll start with True Diagnostic. So you can find us on www.truediagnostic.com. You can purchase any of the kits there or even just read about our story and read about our science. We also have a Instagram, True Diagnostic Official. And then we're on LinkedIn everywhere. Personally, for me, you can find me on LinkedIn, Varun, V-A-R-U-N, Dwarka, D-W-A-R-A-K-A on LinkedIn or even Instagram as well. I'm there as well. I try to, I mean, I don't, don't get me wrong. I don't have too much of a following. If people are interested and they just want to like say what up, yeah, there it is. (laughs) Just 
get their inspiration from the people. I'll try to be inspiring there with you my. You can drop. You pictures. can drop Russ quotes with your cat and dog pictures. Yeah, actually, yeah. Ed Sheeran, another there name. Oh my god, we're here for it. I love it. Yeah, I'm awesome, Baru. Thank you so much. I know I learned a ton from you today, and I know our audience did as well. So really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me.